you all to the church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the joy we have of being yours. We thank you that you have paid the price to make us yours. We thank you for the privilege we have of bearing your name and walking in your way. We ask that you today help us as we look into your word to grow in our knowledge of you, in our love for you, um, and our ability to live out that love, that knowledge in the world around us. We pray all this for the glory of your name. Amen. So I grew up, as you may know, if you talk to me or if you look in the bulletin, a little blurb about me they put in when I preach. I grew up in the country of Senegal, in West Africa, a missionary kid there. Um, Senegal is in the part of Africa, in a region called the Sahel. The Sahel is a transition zone, um, transitioning towards the Sahara Desert. In fact, the town I grew up in, northern Senegal, is just a few miles from the official start of the Sahara Desert. So where I grew up, it is pretty sandy. Um, it's pretty dusty. If you go out there, there's not a lot of vegetation. Where there is vegetation, it's kind of a scrub bush. Um, thorns, kind of variety. It's pretty rough, pretty barren. Um, one of the things we experienced growing up in Senegal um, is we get these massive dust storms. The you know, wind blows, everything's really, really dry, and so it picks up all this dust and it settles down into the storm. And you know, my mom, is, I mean, she keeps a nice clean house, and she, she would shut all our windows very tightly, as tightly as you could. Um, but even when you shut the windows tightly and you put all those, you know, the board them up and everything, the dust comes in and just settles over everything. So it's a really, really dry, dusty environment. So you kind of might kind of wonder, like, well, what do they do economically in a place like that? And the answer is they actually are still doing agriculture. It's still a subsistent agriculture economy. And they think, how on earth, when it's that dry, how do you grow anything in that kind of environment? And the answer, of course, is that two months a year, or thereabouts, give or take a little bit, it changes. You get the rainy season. When the rainy season would hit, all of a sudden the whole landscape of northern Senegal would transform. You go from these kind of dry, dusty, brown kind of landscape of sand to all of a sudden green everywhere. Right? And so plant, you know, farmers would plant their crops um, and would have to grow it during that time. They would raise a crop in a good year. Um, you could scratch out a living out of that tough landscape um, by growing. That. And so you get life coming in where before it looked like it was just barrenness and death. Those memories kind of came back to me and well in my mind this week um, as I was studying um, for this message. Because of course this is such a dominant theme um, in our Isaiah readings today. This is the dominant image we get. In fact, there are no fewer by my count than eight references, right? to this kind of theme of water coming in and making a barren landscape not barren, making it into a fruitful landscape. I just want to walk through those very quickly with you as we um, begin to look at this passage together. First of all, Isaiah says, the wilderness, the dry land, will be glad, right? There'll be a joy that comes to it. Um, when I was there in Senegal growing up, it would rain out there, those kind of rare rain moments, right? You'd look out the windows and see people literally dancing in the street, especially kids, right? It's like, oh, free shower, right? Uh, everyone's just dancing out there, having a grand old time. Rain has come. Life has come. Hope has come again, right? And that's the kind of image Isaiah gives us here. The wilderness, the dry land, will be glad. 
the desert will rejoice. It will blossom like a crocus, right? Um, and so you get this picture of like there's just sand, and all of a sudden everything's blossoming. It's growing. There are beautiful flowers that are popping out, right? Things have transformed. It'll blossom abundantly. They'll rejoice with joy and singing. And so the image Isaiah gives us there is it's so beauty, beautiful, we're all celebrating. This is party time, right? Because the rains have come, things have changed. Fourth, he says, the waters will break forth in the wilderness. The idea of breaking forth gives us this image of, you know, there's something that doesn't normally belong there. You wouldn't expect it that all of a sudden breaks in and it changes that reality. It breaks forth and suddenly things are better. There are streams in the desert. That's the fifth analogy here. And I grew up, again, I said in northern Senegal, right where we live, you get the Senegal River. The Senegal River is a sort of stream in that desert, kind of between the Sahel and the Sahara. And right along there, as you'd expect, along that river, where you get all these farming communities, all this green, all this life, right? It's a place that, in this dry land, brings life to people. And they're able to um, get a better living if they can live there near the river, right? That's a fruitfulness in the midst of the barrenness. Sixth, Isaiah says, the burning sand will turn into a pool. If you've watched any movie set in the desert, you've read any book, uh, especially like those comic books, right, that have desert scenes, right? you know about the mirage, right? You get that vision, like, oh, I'm here in the burning sand of the desert, and there's water just ahead of me. I'm going to keep walking toward that water, and then you get there, and it's not there, right? It's the, sh the shining off um, sand. What a disappointment. But Isaiah says, this is the real thing. This is not a mirage. Where there's burning sand that destroys, there will be a pool that you can go into, a pool that will sustain life. Seventh, he says, the thirsty ground will turn into these springs of water. The ground itself desires the water. It needs it. It's greedy for water that can bring life where there is no life. And then the eighth and last one, he says, the haunt of jackals. A place where there's only dry grass will turn into a place of reeds and rushes, right? Reeds and rushes are those plants that only grow where there's a ton of water. We have this nature center right near where we live in Blaine. We like to walk over there, and they have this lovely part you can walk over. It's kind of over this watery area, and there's all these reeds and rushes growing up, right? Those grow when there's a ton of water. Dry grass grows anywhere where it can find any moisture whatsoever, right? So we're going to change from the dry grass to reeds and rushes. You're going to have this flourishing, this abundance of water, and therefore of life. So think, take those images. Think about them for just a second. And go back, if you would with me for a moment, to our reading of the past two weeks. Right? It's our third week now in Isaiah, the third week of Advent. Two weeks ago, we had the image of death being turned into life, right? Um, with this that, that image of instruments of death being transformed, right? And the swords being beaten into plows, right? So instead of something to kill someone, it's something to raise food so we can live. Um, you have spears turning into pruning hooks, right? So instruments of death turning into instruments that cultivate life. Last week, you have that image of the dead stump all of a sudden producing a shoot. All of a sudden, you get a fruitful branch. And so where there was death, now again, you have life. And today we have this image of what is dry and dead, the sandy desert turning into something green and growing and full of life. And Isaiah links this, right? He says, this is, 
This area that was barren, right, will be glorious, will be majestic. And it's not just in glory. He links this to the glory of God himself. If you look at the verse again there, it says, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Shiraz. So he's here referencing, these are places people know. They're beautiful places, right? You know, yeah, you go there. It's going to be lovely. That's wonderful. And he says, our dryness is going to turn into beauty like that. Why? Because they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So this is a powerful and beautiful image, but it's not just a beautiful picture to stick in our heads and think like, that's nice, it's fun to dwell on that. It's a picture that's designed to enter in and change our lives. This God is like that water touching the desert. He enters and it changes everything. In Advent, of course, we both remember that God has come among us as the man Christ Jesus, and we also look forward to him coming again in power as the one who will establish his kingdom and make everything new. In a similar way, I think, for his own time, Isaiah's prophecy here both recalls what has been for the people of Israel and Judah and what will be. So there's reminders of the Exodus, which, of course, is in their past, in our past, um, and, you know, think about, like, receiving water in the desert, right? Or the theme of God delivering them, right? These are Exodus kinds of themes, right? God's giving them freedom to hear, to speak, and to see, and to move. And so we get these themes of Exodus that would have popped out to Isaiah's original readers and listeners. But as Father Paul noted last week, Isaiah is also pointing to the exile God's people are about to undergo. And God promised that even in that, he is going to bring his people back. To a place of flourishing. If you look at the end of the passage, I just want to dwell on this for a few minutes. Isaiah writes, The highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon them. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion the city. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I want to note four things from these verses very quickly. First, this way that he describes, the way that is reserved, for God's people. It's set apart for God's people. Isaiah calls it the way of holiness. And that word holy is the idea of being set apart. Right? So this is set apart for God's people. So those who have not put their trust in God, who are not in his way, are excluded from it. It belongs to those who walk in the way. Secondly, Isaiah notes, God's people on this way are going to be protected. God will keep them on the way. So last week we read about the peaceful kingdom where the distinction between predators and prey disappears, right? Because all of them are living together in God's peace. Here we see, too, the absence of those who would destroy. There are going to be no lions. There will be no ravenous beasts. There will be no unclean here. God is going to sustain people. And for those of us who are in his way, God keeps us there even with our shortcomings. I love that line. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I mean, which one of us isn't foolish sometimes? I'm not going to raise my hand. Isn't that a comforting thought? Even if we're fools, God says, you're mine. I've got you. God keeps you. Third, the passage refers 
to God's people as the redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord. In Alec Walker's commentary on Isaiah, he notes the term redeemed stresses the person of the Redeemer, his relationship to the Redeemer, and his intervention on their behalf. The work of Redeemer was a right which no other dared to usurp. The most obvious example of that idea of redemption is found in the story of Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz willingly takes on the role of being Ruth's Redeemer. He buys back the land that's been lost by the husband's family, he marries her, and he brings her into God's people. Boaz, of course, had to defer to a man who's actually closer, but that man was unwilling to redeem, and so Boaz steps in and he shoulders that burden for Ruth and Naomi, and in doing that, he changes their story. He transforms it. That's what God does for us. We are his redeemed. And that brings us to the final thing to note from these last verses here in Isaiah 35. How does this change our reality? Again, Isaiah writes, the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We lit the pink candle today because this is joy Sunday. And here we have Isaiah telling us, God will give us everlasting joy. That's part of our path with him. Sorrow and sighing will be banished. Gladness and joy will come in. They'll be our lot in life. And what's interesting to note is I mean, how the, the passage is kind of bookended with this idea, right? So we just read the, the end there, right? Is this idea of, of joy coming to us, this everlasting joy. And the passage began, right? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing, right? So joy and singing are at the heart of kind of who we are as God's redeeming people. But here's what's hard for us, I think, in hearing all that. That's all true. Absolutely. But God knows this is not how things are in our world. What I just described is probably not, like you said, like, yep, that is completely 100% my way of existence. Excellent. That's you. Praise the Lord. Right? But that's not what's Probably not. And in the middle verses of our reading, and in our psalm, and in our gospel, we get these lists of the way that God is entering in and taking our brokenness and making it new. Right? So the deaf hear, the blind see, the lame walk, the oppressed receive justice, prisoners are free, hungry are fed, poor receive good news. Right? And, and that word, I hope, strengthens our own trembling hands and weak knees and anxious hearts. But it reminds us of something. Why does God have to step in and do all those things? Because we're broken. Because our brokenness is real. We are living in that not yet. We're on the path, we're walking in the way, but we've not arrived at the fullness of joy. Right? We are not to that second coming yet. And add that we're both looking forward to what's happened. Jesus came as a baby, but we're also anticipating what's going to happen. Jesus will come again as our king. And we live between those times. And that, I think, brings to us this question, you know, like, okay, so what do we do with that? How do we live well between those times? How can we live joyfully even when our reality encounters that brokenness all the time. To think about that, I want to think about our two New Testament readings for just a few minutes. Let's look at our Gospel reading first. In the Gospel reading, we have John the Baptist, who has preached repentance to prepare the path for Jesus' coming. He has baptized Jesus at Jesus' own command. And here's John, and he's stuck in prison. And he's struggling. He's struggling to have hope and joy. Jesus is doing all these awesome things out there. But you know who's not feeling it? John. Jesus is freeing people from their illnesses and from the things that are oppressing them. You know who's not being free? John. 
He's sitting in jail. And so he sends a message to Jesus. Hey, are you really the one? Are you the one we're waiting for, or should we wait for someone else? And Jesus responds so beautifully. He responds so gently. He responds both gently to John and the message he sends back, but also to the people around him. He thinks about John. So first of all, to John, he says, just go tell John. John knows. John, John proclaims the message, right? He says, go tell John. This is what's happening. Here are the works of God that are being accomplished. John knows the answer to this question. It's not the problem, but he just needs to be brought back to reflect on it. So John, here's what's happening. What do you think, John? But here's the thing. Jesus is saying this to John as a man in prison. John wants to be free, and the reality he faces is that although Jesus is here freeing the people, John is not going to be free. He will die in prison, just as Jesus himself, of course, will go to the cross. He's mocked on the cross. You save others. You can't save yourself. No. Not if I'm going to do God's will. No. John's reminded, we're reminded, that we can't define success by our own feeling of happiness and pleasure in the things that are happening to us. That's not how God's kingdom is defined. It's not defined by my own experience of right and I enjoy what's going on with me right now. What am I called to? So John, Jesus gently responds to John and reminds him there's a bigger picture of your job. Think about that. But then Jesus looks at those around him and he talks about John. Not in a bad way, not that people trying to talk behind their back with people and you know, like ah person question me, right? Let's look talk talk bad about him. Jesus isn't doing that. He says some beautiful things about John. He says, Here is John. Right? John's a great prophet. Why? Because he humbly did the will of God. He walked in the way. And then, at the end of our gospel reading, we get this beautiful acknowledgement by Jesus that he gets it. He gets that kind of brokenness we live in. He gets the pain and the frustration of trying to walk in his way in this world that doesn't push us in that direction, to put it mildly. After all, here came John. He walks in the way God laid out for him prophet in the wilderness, he's out there living this kind of rough life, proclaiming the word of the Lord. And what did people say about John? That guy is crazy! He must have a demon! What's wrong with him? Look at him! So John didn't get accepted. And then Jesus comes along. He's got a very different path that God's laid out for him. He's there, he's hanging out with these people at the margins of society, right? He is, he is there with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. He's eating and drinking. John's doing this like very austere life. It's very different from John. And what do they say about Jesus? Do they accept that? No, not that either, right? They, say, they look at him and they say, Ah, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't win, right? Both sides. <laughs> but what happens? The way gets criticized. And he ends by saying, Wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's not justified by people's reactions. It's justified by her deeds. And so we see here in this reading that Jesus is saying, I get it. I get the pain of living between the times. He himself is living between those times. He doesn't just get it here, like I understand what you're saying. He gets it here. Right? He's felt it. He's lived it. He's been there. He's had people with that. Living by the way of God's kingdom is hard. People don't want us, really, to beat our swords into plows or our spears into pruning heads. They want us to fight the battle right alongside them and play by their rules. They don't want us to forgive as we've been forgiven. They want us to be vindictive so that they can feel better about doing that. They don't want us to turn away from being predatory and seeking our own advantage. 
After all, that's we call that self-interest, right? And so we all want to pursue that. Acting in any of those ways is a sign of contradiction to the world. It's a sign of contradiction. Jesus lived that, John lived that, and the sign to which we're called. Because those, those are the paths of life. That's the path of life. You know, a dead stump doesn't do anyone much good. But you get a fruitful branch, now we're talking. Right? A dry desert doesn't do anyone much good. But when there's rain, and now there's streams, there's pools of water, there's light, now we're talking. Yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Think about those, those tensions. That's life, not death. We're called to the path of life. So like Jesus, we're called to bring life into the fallenness and the death of our world. And that, of course, brings us to our epistle reading. In James, he begins by telling us here, be patient. And then he gives us this analogy of the farmer. How do farmers get the land to bring them across? They have to be patient. Come back to the place in the world I grew up in, right? You have to be patient. You have to wait for that moment to plant the seed where you're going to land it right with the rainy season. And then you wait, and that's really hard because you can't rush the rain. They'll come and they come, and you wait. And then when those come, you do what you got to do to cultivate the ground, and you wait for more rain. And then you wait for the time to harvest. Right? You have to wait. You have to be patient. So we have this image of being patient. And James says, be patient. Be patient like the farmer. And then he comes back and just we missed it and says one more time, be patient. Right? Three times we use that word patient there right at the beginning. Why should we be patient? Because we're called to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In other words, James is saying, live by the real rules of life. Live by God's rules, not the rules of this world. Walk in the way. God is coming, and only he and his kingdom truly matter. And then look at how James ends his letter. This is the end. What we read today is the end of the epistle of James. He ends by emphasizing our path to this gladness, and this joy, this flourishing in this time between times is grounded in our community as the church, as the body of Christ. We do things together. We rely on each other. We anoint each other with oil. We confess with each other and to each other our sins. We pray for each other. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And we take responsibility for each other. The last verse, verses of the, that's the very last end there, says, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This theme of our mutual dependence on each other is a theme that has come up again and again in Advent. Two weeks ago, Father Chris asked us to reflect on who did we need to forgive? What do we need to let go of? Last week, Father Paul used the example of Edward Hicks' Peaceable Kingdom painting. To ask us to recognize that in our fallenness, our part in the story was sometimes more like the lion, the unreformed lion, than like the lamb. How do we become like the lion and the leopard and the bear, not in their natural state, their fallen state, but in God's peaceful kingdom, able to graze peacefully alongside everyone else? How do we do that? How can we no longer be so focused on our own self-interest that we run over the needs of others. How can we live in peace with them and see our good as being consistent with their good? The example of Jesus in his gentle reply to John and his thoughtful reflection to those around him about John and the challenge of walking in the way, I think gives us a really powerful example to reflect on as we think about how we live well together in community. 
James reminds us that we have to do this with patience, with prayer, confessing and forgiving and being forgiven, taking responsibility for each other, just as Christ has taken responsibility for us. We are also, in some way, called into that work of redeeming. It is our right as Christians that we too are called to help redeem others um, by our actions. We take on our identity as a little Christ, is the idea of Christians. The last few years of strain these kinds of ties within the church and the country. It brought new and deeper divisions, distancing, and fatigue. Very easy, I think, to engage less or to disengage altogether. But our Lord gently reminds us our spiritual life is linked together with each other. And we have the right and indeed the responsibility to lovingly serve each other and care for each other. He reminds us, walk in the way together. Our joy is to gather as Christ's body. The streams in the desert, the pools where there, are, where there was once burning sand, that's not just for me to enjoy by myself. Who wants to spend this for us to enjoy together? We're together in this. Last fall, um, Joel Johnson, the pastor here in the city, was at Bethel and Spoken Chapel. Uh, Joel's a fantastic Bible teacher, so I went to hear him, him preach. And Joel gave this message in which his kind of punchline was, we get to be the church. And he had all the students and all the people who were present repeat that. We get to be the church. I thought, what a great line. That we get to be the church. And I thought of that line again as I was preparing this message. We get to be the church. We get to do this work that God invites, has done for us, but invites us into. Um, so Church of the Redeemer, let us draw near to God by becoming more fully in communion with each other, with the body of Christ. Let's find our joy together. And let's ask ourselves those hard questions. Who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to reach out to? Who do we need to walk more closely with on that way of holiness? So let us walk together as the ransoms of the Lord. Let us come together with singing, knowing that even as we live within the sorrows of this world, everlasting joy is upon our heads. And our joy, that joy, is linked together with all who are part of the body of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.